I graduated from Wofford in 1990, as did she, and she went straight into grad school, and I taught school for a year, and then I went into graduate school, and uh, we both finished graduate school at the same time, except um, I had to write a thesis and do an internship, and she and I ended up back at Wofford working in the very next year. And when we did, uh, I noticed that uh, I remembered in in, uh, college, she drove an old... um, Volkswagen, one of those old convertibles, and in college I drove a 1979 Plymouth Horizon, two-tone, four-door, gray-on-gray hatchback. It was a beauty. I was poor as dirt. She appeared to be not much better off than I, and I remembered that we uh, would uh, compare notes as uh, we were fresh out of grad school. Neither of us had money. We ate uh, ramen noodles uh, on numerous occasions at night. We uh, worked in the same office, and so we would talk about how poor we were. Our mom and dad came into town, and they took us out to eat, and we were thrilled because we got real food that night. We went out to eat and uh, uh, had, had a wonderful meal. It was only after that occasion that... Um, I stumbled upon who her mom and dad were, uh, especially her dad. His name was Ernie Davenport, and Ernie Davenport uh, was from Johnson City, Tennessee. They both lived in Johnson, Ten- Johnson City, Tennessee, her, her mom and dad did, and he happened to be uh, executive vice president of Kodak. And um, I discovered that by happenstance, and He was executive vice president of Kodak. He worked there in that massive plant uh, called Eastman Kodak in Johnson City. As a matter of fact, at the time, that one plant employed 14,000 people. Uh, I was talking with an uncle of mine who worked there after that and telling them that I'd had dinner with Ernie Davenport and his wife. And he said, you had dinner with Ernie Davenport? I said, yes, sir, I did. And He said, wow, he travels with a bodyguard in Johnson City, Tennessee. He's the most loved and the most hated man in all of town. Why is that? I asked. He said, well, if you get fired, you hate him. And if you have a great job, as many of us do, you love him. Uh, Eastman Kodak's so large, the plant's so big that they literally, in the changing of, uh, of shifts, have traffic lights in the hallways. As the flood of people are going through, then the light changes and that mass of people stops and the other mass goes through. And I learned that not only was Ernie in charge of Eastman, he was in charge of Kodak for all of the South. He had 40,000 people working just for him. 40,000. And I'd had dinner with this guy and had no clue how powerful he was. No clue how powerful he was, how he had almost single-handedly taken on Al Gore in this whole thing because Gore wanted to shut down that plant because of, uh, of the environment. I mean, just so many things, and I had dinner with this guy. And do you know what I thought afterward? My uncle, by the way, told me that his Christmas bonus the year before was $800,000. I had dinner with this guy, and I thought after that, knowing everything I know, I want to redo I want dinner again. Why can't he come back into town? I want to sit down with this guy. I want to ask him how he went from being a poor Mississippi boy to becoming the executive vice president of Kodak. I want to redo. And why is his daughter's car so ugly? You know, 
there are some things I want to know. I want to ask the man some questions. Why does she eat ramen noodles like I eat ramen noodles and the guy's so filthy, sick, and rich? And I just wanted to know these things. Never got the chance for a redo. I went my way. Lisa went her way. And, uh, and I don't even know where she is right now. Don't know where he is right now. But I, I wanted a redo. Here is the reality that that justice I feel about how great it would be to sit down and have a conversation with Ernie and discover more about his journey and how he made it to where he is. I am convinced that many of you have attended church for much of your life and you still don't know who Jesus is. And this morning is an opportunity for a redo. You get to sit down with with whom Margaret read about as the King of Kings and Lord of Lords and have a conversation with him. You've sung songs to him. You've sung, we believe our God is Jesus. We believe that he is Lord. We believe that he has saved us. But who is this Jesus? And if he is a Jesus void of the book of Revelation, you only have a partial picture of him. A partial picture. And so this morning, Revelation 19, we arrive at the second return of Christ. And let me uh, just say on the chart, just kind of show you where we are and show where the two positions, the two main positions, Christ's first coming is on the cross, resurrection, ascension, moved through to the church being established, and then Israel in 1947 being reestablished as a nation major historical event, I believe the next big event to occur is the rapture. Let me pause there. Some people believe the next big event to occur is the tribulation. And so that's here, a period of seven or so years, and then we trek on to Armageddon and Christ's second coming. All right? This is what I'm preaching about today. If you are in the camp who believes that the tribulation will precede the blue arrow there, Christ's second coming, you put the rapture and the second coming all together. It's all together in one event. All right, so crazy, oversimplified view of eschatology, but there it is. You can go look at it in detail on my blog. But when he comes back in Revelation 19, there are four names that we are given of his. And those four names give us an opportunity before the the event for a redo. And the first one is this, he is called faithful and true. Jesus is faithful and true. John says, then I saw heaven opened. Let me just say quickly as an aside, this is exact language to to the baptism event where heaven opened. And and God said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. John sees heaven open. Heaven opens wide. And he sees a white horse. He sees a white horse. At his first coming, Jesus sat on on a donkey. But on the day of his ultimate triumph, he will sit on a white horse. So John sees him sitting on a white horse. And he says, the one sitting on this horse is called faithful and true. We hear those words, and they're pretty common words. And so we say, okay, faithful and true, what do they mean? Well, in a Greek idea, the reality, uh, something being true means doesn't measure up to reality. 
All right, for example, if you say it is 43 degrees outside right now, the way to know if that is true is to take a a thermometer outside and see if it's 43 degrees. That's a Greek idea of true. But the Hebrew idea of true is different. While it includes it must be true to reality, it also has, has the, the, uh, adds the fact of reliability. As a matter of fact, true and faithful are the same thing to a Hebrew. If you are true, you are by extension faithful. You will do what you say you will do. That's what that means. If you, if you are true, you are faithful, you are reliable. So it begs the question then, why is Jesus here called faithful and true? Why do we have two words essentially meaning the same thing to describe him? Let me go all the way back. I did this for our Old Testament class on Sunday night. Let me go all the way back to the Abrahamic covenant. Genesis chapter 15, God calls Abraham out and he makes an agreement, a covenant with him. What is fascinating about this covenant, and Tim Keller pointed this out beautifully in a sermon, so I'll borrow from him a little bit here. What is incredible about this covenant is that God says to Abraham, I want you to take some animals, three uh, three or four, uh, actually five animals to be exact. Three of those animals end up being cut in half. Uh, they're sacrificed, they're cut in half, and the pieces of which are lay, laid on both sides. All right, so on one side you have half of these animals and the other half is over here. Now, here's how it worked. For Abraham to hear that, that's nothing unusual. Because in Abraham's day, if you made a covenant, a superior would say to an inferior, take some animals, cut them apart, and when you do, lay animals on either side, and, and, and you walk through those animals. And when you walk through those animals, you will say, may it be done to me as has been done to these animals if I break this covenant. It was an object lesson of the covenant. Here are these animals. They're split in two. If I, an inferior king to a superior king, break this, then split me in two. Destroy my life. I'm in. So God says to Abraham, I want you to do that. So God being the superior, Abraham the inferior, cut the animals in two, and then a deep sleep falls on Abraham. And when it does, something amazing happens. God never asked Abraham to walk through the pieces. God did. He came down his spirit in the form of a a boiling pot, the imagery of a boiling pot, and that boiling pot passed through between the pieces. Why would the superior walk through the pieces that the inferior ought to walk through and say, may it be done to me, If I break this covenant, let me give you two reasons. Number one, here's the first reason. The God was saying this as he went through the pieces of animal, may it be done to me, God, if I break this covenant. I'm in. I'm faithful. I'm true. I'm in. But since he was the superior and Abraham was the inferior, the second thing God was saying is, may it be done to me, If you break this covenant, may my body be ripped apart. And ultimately, they broke the covenant. And ultimately, the body of Christ was ripped apart 
for the sins of the people. This Jesus who is sitting on a horse has the name faithful and true because in Genesis chapter 15, God said, may it be done to me if you break the covenant. Wow. He's faithful and true. He's completely and totally reliable. Completely and totally reliable. I realize that uh, last week when I made the announcement about no more breakfast next door, that there were some teenagers who go, food, why? Because food is great. If you're a teenager, I have a kid who's not one yet, and he eats like three. So I know how it is. So this morning I was leaning down to the front row here, these three amigos who always sit on the front row, and I said, hey, guys, missing breakfast? Yep. What if I cook breakfast for you in a couple weeks? Wow. I said, what do you want? Bacon. What else do you want? Bacon. That's what they said. Then Nathan said something. He said, he's a preacher. He can't lie. (laughs) Right? That's what he, didn't you say that? Yes, you did. Don't lie right here. Oh, it was James. My bad. It was James. Like, dude, don't put me up. All right. So, so it was James. So James said, he's a preacher. He can't lie. Now, preachers lie, number one. And number two, number two, I am cooking breakfast. And, but number two, here's it. Here's the reality. Here's the reality. To be faithful and true means that God is always true to himself. He cannot lie. He will not lie. He will never lie. He will always come through. Amen? Amen. That's what Jesus is. And when God went through the carcasses of those animals, he was saying, may it be done to me if you break this covenant. May it be done to me if I break it. God was saying, I'm in. I'm absolutely, totally, completely in. Then secondly, we see something rather mysterious. Jesus is what? Well, it's an unknown name. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems. Let me touch on that for just a moment. When we talked about, the, about Satan and the beast, you remember that? We talked about the crowns that they wore, and there were seven and ten respectively. Jesus' crowns are too many to number. It just shows the superiority of Christ. He has many diadems. They have a limited number, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. It's a secret name whose meaning is veiled from all created beings. John didn't know. Guess what? It's a fruitless study to try to figure it out. It is. Genesis thirty-two twenty-nine. there are three instances in the Old Testament, in, or two in the Old and one in the New that I've discovered where this happened. In Genesis thirty-two twenty-nine, some of you know the story of Jacob who wrestled with the angel all night, and, and he wrestled all night, and at the end of the night, he says, well, who are you? And the angel refused to name himself. But then there's a, a less known story. It's a story of a guy named Manoah. Uh, uh, Manoah... Uh, his wife was barren, and in Hebrew times, that was not a good thing at all. As a matter of fact, it was a thing of shame, as it still is for some people today. At least it is a thing of regret and difficulty. And I've walked with some of you through that kind of pain. 
But Manoah's wife was barren, and the angel of the Lord shows up to her, and when he does, he says to her, you're going to have a child, and he needs to be a Nazarite. And, and Nazarite, what was that? This is during the period of the judges when, when Israel went through this cycle of sin, repeated sin, and, and God would judge them, and they would repent, and God would send them a judge, a deliverer. The judge was a deliverer, and they needed a deliverer. And so God shows up to Manoah's wife and says, you're going to have a child. He is to be a Nazarite. Don't cut his hair, and he can't drink, among other things. And so she goes to tell Manoah, we're going to have a child. And Manoah says, who told you? And she says, this, this man showed up who told me. And so he gets on his knees and says, God, I want to read to. I want to read to. Would you send this messenger again? Because we really don't know how to raise a Nazarite. All right. By the way, not a bad prayer for any parent today. God needs some help. Don't know how to raise the kids. That's what Manoah prayed. And the messenger shows up. And when the messenger shows up, Manoah doesn't know that it is the angel of the Lord. That's in parentheses in the book of Judges. He doesn't know that it's the angel of the Lord. And in the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord, when there's a definite article on the front, it's almost always a Christophany. It's a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. And he doesn't know. And so the angel says, well, this is what you're going to do. You have a Nazarite. You're going to name him Samson. You're going to name your boy Samson, and he'll be a Nazarite, and this is how you raise him. And and so Manoah does what any good Hebrew does, let me fix a meal for you. And the angel of the Lord says, no, no meal necessary, but offer it as a burnt offering to the Lord. Uh, Sacrifice it. I don't need to eat your food. And then Manoah does the very next obvious thing. He says, what is your name? And what does he answer? He says, why should I tell you? Isn't it wonderful? That's what the angel of the Lord says. In the Hebrew language, that means extraordinary. Isn't my name extraordinary? And since it is, why do I have need to tell you my name? It's extraordinary. What did the angel of the Lord mean? Two major needs are being met. Number one, Israel needs a deliverer. And I'm making your wife pregnant so that she can bring up Samson, who will be a Nazarite, to deliver his people. Number two, your wife is barren. And I am taking care of her. Why do you need to know my name? Isn't it extraordinary? So, dear, what does this mean? This means if Jesus has rescued you from your sins, call him rescuer. If he has healed you from disease, then he is your healer. If you have needed counsel and he has come through for you, then call him counselor. If you have been alone in your marriage and you have needed a friend, then call him friend. If you have been at the end of your money and you had more bills than you had money and God came through for you, then Jesus is provider. He is, he simply is every single thing you will ever need in your life. Amen? Amen. He is. 
Why do you need to know that name? Why must the mystery be unfolded? Allow it to be a mystery. Allow the Christ who does not unveil that name to unveil himself and to unveil himself for you when you need him most. When you're at wit's end, when your life is unraveling, when the nation of Israel is falling apart, he's extraordinary. Especially extraordinary then. Say, Jerry, what's the point? My point is this, is that there are ways you do not know him now that one day you will know him because you will need him as that. And that will be the case for the rest of your life. And that is the joy of knowing Jesus. You never, ever know him fully. You never, ever, ever get there. I've shared this before, but I look out and see Sarah Syak sitting here. And I remember, however old Noah is, how old is Noah? Almost 10. Noah standing up here singing this morning. Sarah was my secretary at the time, pregnant with Noah, and became crazy ill. Very ill. They delivered Noah. I remember going in to see Sarah, who was literally fighting for her life that day. I had never seen anyone in such duress. And so they rushed me out and they put her in a coma for for a week. Her family came in from all over and for a week we camped out at the hospital. That very Sunday night that this went down, uh, this church met and begged God, literally wept, begging God to heal her. And the doctors kept saying, we don't know who we'll get when we, when we wake her up out of this coma. We don't know what will happen. But when they did, obviously, Sarah's in great health, has had two more children since then. And Sarah now knows Jesus as healer. He is. We could pause for a moment here and you could sit and simmer in this. He is. His character proves his name. He is faithful and true. He is. Final examples in John nine twenty five. Love the story, story of a man born blind since he was blind since he was born. Jesus sees him, and he makes some spittle with mud and spit, and, or dirt and spit, makes mud, put it on the guy's eyes, and he heals him. And when he does, he really got it wrong because it was on the Sabbath, the very idea to heal a man born blind, but he did. Could I pause here to say that sometimes we can miss the greatness of God's work because of the smallness of our agenda? That's what happened to the Pharisees. They called him out on it. And so they go looking for the guy's parents. And the parents don't want to get caught in the middle of it. They're calling out the parents, right? You know, who was this guy who healed, who healed him? And the parents are like, hey, he's of age. Go ask him. He's a big guy. 
speak for himself. So what happens? So they go get the son again. They get the big guy and they bring him in and they say, you know, what happened to you? And they're accusing Jesus of being a sinner because he healed on the Sabbath. Uh, But the reality is that he can never go against his character. So it doesn't matter what day he heals, it's going to be right. And so, so they're accusing him of being a sinner. And here's what the guy says. Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, <laughs> that though I was blind, now I see. What's he saying? I don't care what you call the man. I don't care who you say he is. I was blind since I was born. And all of a sudden, I see you now. I see trees. I see water. My life has been radically changed. And I'm guessing across this room, we would have hundreds of people who would say, I do not know Jesus as I want to know him. But I can tell you this, once I was lost, but now I'm found. Once I was blind, but now I see. Once I was hopeless, but now I have hope. Amen, church? He is that Jesus. And he is the one who is coming back for us. Number three, Jesus is the word of God. We have him pictured here. He is clothed in a robe, dipped in blood. Much to do about where the blood is. I think I'm not gonna read it in, in its entirety this morning. Isaiah 63, verses one through six, predict all of this, all right? And in Isaiah 63, 1 through 6, we learn that the blood is from his enemies. The blood is from the Antichrist and all the nations who have followed him. And here we get the third name. He is called the Word of God. The Word of God. In Hebrew thought, a word is not just a lifeless sound. It is an active agent, okay? A word is an active agent. That's where we get the verse Hebrews 4.12. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, pierces to the division of soul and spirit, joint and marrow, and is able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. So you have this active agent. Jesus is the word of God. And we have this uh, same idea in, in, in our modern context. If you, talk about, if you talk about a woman who seems to be calling the shots in her home, what do we say? When she says jump, he says, everybody knows it, right? How high? Meaning her words have power. All right, she just says it and he does it. It's just like this boom, boom reaction. Genesis 1, 3, 7, and 9, all of those verses say, and God said, let there be, and there was. Jesus is the word of God. Well, what does this mean? Let's bring it into the context of Jesus' own ministry. We find it in Matthew chapter 8. A centurion who was a pagan described in Matthew 8 verse 5 and not a Jew. It's clear that Matthew the Jew wants all his readers to get this. He was a pagan and not a Jew. All right? Didn't look like good people, dressed like good people. He was a Roman, came to Jesus and said, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the what? The word. Only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. What is the, what is the centurion saying? He is saying, I know how words work. I too use words. I say go, and that guy goes. I say come, and that guy comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does that. I know how authority works. I have authority over the people who report to me. But Jesus, I believe that if you speak the word, you have authority 
over the body of one of my servants. That's what he's saying. Jesus looks at him. When he heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I mean, I've been all over Israel. This is the place of faith, not Romans, not pagans. I haven't found it. Truly I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. What is Jesus saying? He has given the case right there for the Gentile expansion of the kingdom. He's saying, here's a pagan. He comes in. He says, hey, I know how words work, and I know that you're powerful enough. You don't have to be under my roof. I'm not even, I can't even have you under my roof. I'm not even worthy to have you there. But I know, Jesus, if you stand in right here in this space, we'll say the word that way over there under my roof is a guy who is sick, and he will be healed. All you have to do is say the word. And Jesus is saying, here, there are sons of Abraham who don't even get that. And so what's going to happen? The table's getting a little bit bigger. And sitting at the table are going to be people who aren't Jews and they're Gentiles. While the sons of the kingdom, those who would be Jews, would be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And, and to the centurion, Jesus said, go, let it be done. For as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. Why? Because Jesus is the word of God. He simply speaks and it's done. He simply says, and it happens. No touch required. There's no one-on-one contact necessary. Jesus simply is the word of God. All the way back from creation till now. Jesus still speaks and it's done. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? What is it at your workplace in your marriage, what sin are you battling that you think is somehow untouchable by Jesus? Off limits. His power limited against that. Finally, Jesus is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The armies follow him. They're arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, and they're on white horses. Notice they have no weapons. Why? Because I believe these are the martyrs referred to earlier in the book of Revelation. Now that they are with the Lord, their lives are immune from death. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he literally, in the Greek, he himself, The single-handed role that Jesus will play in the battle of Armageddon needs not go unnoticed. He himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress. What does that mean? Rule with a rod of iron and tread the winepress. When we were in Israel earlier this year, when we were there, we were at Qumran where the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered and we saw a winepress. The way a winepress works is you have a hewn-out stone area And then you have a trough, and it runs down to a lower hewn-out stone area. So one that's higher, gravity, one that's lower. You pour the fresh grapes up here, 
and then bare feet, sounds gross to us, not to them, bare feet, you stomp on the grapes, stomping the juice out of the grapes until the juice runs through the trough and into the lower trough. That's how grape juice was trampled out. We have this picture here. The grapes are the grapes of wrath of God. Jesus is treading the winepress. He is stomping on the grapes of wrath of God, of the wrath of God. And as he is stomping on the grapes of the wrath of God, the trough comes down and produces the juice in the lower trough, which is, which is pictured here as a cup of the wrath of God that we learned earlier that the Antichrist, that Satan, that the the kingdoms that followed the Antichrist will drink fully of this cup of the wrath of God. Fully of it. Here is where most of our pictures of Jesus are incomplete. Most of us view him as a long-haired, brown-eyed, brown, uh, brown-eyed olive-skinned guy that, uh, whose picture we've seen somewhere. And he was nice and he ran around doing good things. And if that is all Jesus did, what a waste of time. And all Jesus is, what a waste of time church is. But if God with Abraham walked in between the carcasses himself saying, may it be done to me if you break this covenant. And if That happened through Jesus Christ himself on the cross where he received God's wrath for the sin of mankind on himself. He is, as we learned earlier, when they were looking through heaven to find who can open the seals, he is worthy to stamp on the grapes of the wrath of God and for the juice to flow down because every person who gets that has said no to the cross. They've said no to the blood that flowed down the cross. And as the one who stomps the grapes and the juice flows down and pours it into a cup of the wrath, he is king of kings. Oh, earthly kings only think they have power. He is Lord of lords. Earthly masters only think they have power. He is ultimately king. He is ultimately Lord. And while he came once riding on a donkey, he'll come next riding on a white horse in glory and power and splendor. Making right the wrong. Say, so, oh, but Jerry, don't know if I like that picture. Oh, yes, you do. You say, how do you know? How would you know that I like that picture? Here's your exercise. Just go watch 10 minutes of world news. 10 minutes. And when you do, cannot even repeat the story that many of you heard of the woman 
who abused her little boy in Texas this week and tried to fix him with super glue and alcohol. We want justice. It's built into us. Or travel around the world to Africa, to Kenya right now, where believers and those who partner with them in any way are being targeted to be killed. And you will sing with the songwriter who wrote this during the Civil War, mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He is trampling out the vineyard where the grapes of wrath are stored. You will want him to be a just God. And if you have any, any sense, ability about you, you will go, oh, that I may be at your mercy. Having trusted Jesus Christ on the cross for my forgiveness. Let's pray. This morning, we will not do a normal invitation. We will have folks available to talk with you if you need to talk. All you simply need to do is find one of us staff members. We'd love to talk with you. Father, thank you for showing us your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for his death on the cross, which provides life to us. And thank you that he will return as King of Kings and Lord of Lords, the Word of God, who is all we need. Jesus, we love you. May we go with you clear in our minds. In your name we pray, amen.